Welcome to Discography and uh, to a very, very special episode. This is the one year anniversary of Discography. I remember uh, reading a statistic which I've been frantically attempting to hunt down. Uh, it was something like uh, uh, 1% to 5% of all podcasts that are started. By the time they get to six months in, they shut down. And the, you know, the Spotify sphere is littered with the graveyards of podcasts that never made it. But uh, allow me, please, to introduce uh, a man who, without uh, his presence, this would never have happened. In fact, I'm not going to introduce him. He's capable of introducing himself. Hey, everybody. All y'all out there listening to this. It's me. I'm back. It's my good friend, Joe Kennedy. Nice to be here. It's nice to have you back, Joe. Let's give a, a sort of like brief timeline because uh, it's good to make a long story short and to be cognizant of that, not at the end of a story, but at the beginning. Yeah, so I don't know when we first started kicking this around. I, I feel like you were maybe telling me about a trawl you were doing, and I think it may have been like Gordon Lightfoot or something. So just to back up a tiny bit, uh, I actually have kept a written list of trawls that I was doing in multiple discographies at the same time. Just for the my- show ever, it was not even a twinkle in our eye at that point. Right. And Joe was actually uh, on my knob about, about uh, if I can use a, a term that the kids are bandying about, about, uh, about kickstarting one of these because it was a super easy way to make a killing, which we find out was true. <laughs> Yeah, it's a, turns out it's a, it's a golden goose. Yeah, it's a golden goose. You so, just pretty much set up a microphone, and then you just sit, sit back. The gold coins just start raining from the ceiling. Yeah, the only thing you have to do is to tear a hole in your ceiling because the money falls from the sky. If by money you mean bird shit. Bird shit, exactly. <laughs> Uh, because if wampum is acceptable in some cultures, bird shit must be as well. So what happened was for a bunch of months, we accrued uh, notes on trawls, and then uh, we let her rip, and we mounted a trailer. November 1st, 2021 was the introduction, was episode one, was Pink Floyd, 1967 to 1970. We recorded in Joe's studio downtown using, you know, incredible equipment, uh, Neve preamp, am I right? We, yeah, we would run through the Neve. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And uh, crazy setups and all kinds of crazy shit. You know, from the get-go, we had great guests, and we wanted to accrue great episodes before we really, before we promoted it whatsoever, really. So, yeah, that's what I was kind of about to say. We, we There was kind of a, a pretty long period of, like, pre-production, figuring out what the show was going to be, how we were going to, you know, the all the nuts and bolts of it. Um, which still, if you listen to the first episode now, it's, I mean, it's, the show's changed quite a bit, but it's also, um, you know, it's basically the same show. You and I, the first thing we ever recorded was an episode on Beck and there were like a million edits. And then we realized it was not right. Yeah. And so that one, I, weirdly, it's sort of like I was in the the Dave role on that show. Like I I was kind of like driving the narrative, telling the whole, and it was like the problem with that episode was it was like 80% of me talking. (laughs) That was one of the main problems, but I think we just felt like we could do it better. Once we heard one and we were like, this isn't exactly really right on the money, you know? So, um, and there were kind of, there were a lot more kind of, uh, diversions and kind of like, uh, journeys down, pointless alleys <laughs> well bad finger bad finger was another one that we scrapped and the reason for that was because i felt like i was reading from my notes too much 
Right. So, you know, we're uh, just trying to figure out, you know, a way to balance the research with an off the cuff, you know, we're just here, you know, just talking, a couple of guys talking kind of a feel, um, you know, that takes some, a little bit of practice to get that down. But then, you know, the funny thing is you and I, the way that we had planned it, there were never going to be guests. And so to give credit where credit's due, Daniel Gill really was the one who uh, came to the table with the idea of having guests. I think if, honestly, if we didn't take that idea, um, we would, you know, never have achieved any kind of liftoff. Uh, yeah. because, because we probably would have stumbled upon that concept eventually. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And now, of course, it's the obvious route, but... You know, the cool thing was, you know, from the beginning, we were talking about tra- that paperclip story and trading up uh, and, you know, getting like a Z list person and then getting up to A. But we started with, you know, Spiral Stairs and Kevin Whelan from the Wrens. I mean, we were pigs and shit from the beginning and frankly spoiled. Yeah. And again, like credit to Daniel where that's due. I think some of those people were, you know, we were nothing at that time. You know, the show was like, you know, and in dumbasses the double, too. in the double digits of, of episode. Yeah. and um, and, and you know. we and we were psyched like oh my god twenty people just listen to that yeah so you know Daniel really I think has put his credibility on the line for us and got us help us get those guests and I think those guests be, begat other guests you know. Like yeah. Once they, those guests came on and had a positive experience, it got to be a lot easier to book guests. If you, if you build it, he will come. It was around, actually, the monkeys and the replacements when we started to get serious. I mean, look, we didn't have anything but Facebook accounts up until the beginning of spring of yeah. 2022. Then we started to promote. It started to get an audience, not a huge audience, but uh, with Anthony Fantano, it really broke open and more people were listening and it made it divisive between Joe and I. Is that fair to say? Yes. There's a couple other moving parts to this. What The main one is this has been a really tough year for me. Um, it's my dad passed last year and my mom's health is not really A+. plus. So a lot of that's kind of really weighing on me all the time. I'm kind of just getting through this first year of grief and kind of, you kind of, you know, we all go through that, but it's kind of turning me into a little bit of a different person. You know, you kind of have to like, at least the way it was with me and my dad, our relationship, I was very close to him. So that's kind of all going on in the background. And then the other thing that I hadn't really thought about until just sort of recently is that when we started this show, I was working a lot less. Like we were coming out of the pandemic period and I would have, you know, I'd have, I would have, I had done a TV show for ABC the previous season, which got canceled, but um, I was in between doing that show and picking up a lot of the work that I'm doing now. And then by the time like February, March rolled around, I was just up to eyeballs and work like doing music stuff. And that was a radical change because it became like, I had like no time to really, put anything more into the show other than just scraping across the finish line to get it finished. I would edit the show. Right. You, no, you would, rec- you would record, record and edit. Right. Record and edit. Right. So all the technical stuff I was handling and you were handling the other side of it, which was frankly a lot more time consuming, probably doing all the promotion and making all the graphics for the ads and booking the guests and, you know, chasing down all sorts of other stuff. But from, I'm, my end like it, i just did not have the bandwidth to really it, it was starting to become a problem just time bandwidth and then the you know conversely what was happening with me was i feel like uh you know aside from making films i had found my calling and right. so 
you know, I had a career, a successful career in uh, as a hearing instrument specialist, and I was at work putting less and less time into doing that every single day until I was putting no time into it. And in the right. meantime, I, you know, I mean, look, we're, we all lead our lives and I don't blame you for any of this, but I knew you were pulling away, consistently call you what every day at 8.30 AM with whatever, uh -huh. you know, I could, I could tell that, uh, you know, you were having a tough time. And then, you know, I started piling more and more responsibility uh, on to the show so that it would have the most amount of opportunity to succeed right around uh, in June during the Jonathan Rado Todd Rundgren series, which ironically was probably the one you were most looking forward to. Um, in between episodes one and two, you just couldn't take it anymore. Yeah, I was going to need to figure out a way to do the show less somehow. And it was not yeah. heading in that direction. It was heading right. in the opposite direction. Heading in <laughs> the opposite direction. And and, and fair, fairly, uh, if we did it less, it would be a hobby thing. And, and what I, you know, my methodology in thinking about this is, you know, why, if it's so time consuming, I can't call it a hobby. Right. It, has right. To, it would have to justify its existence as a business. Yeah. Because, you know, with our kids, it's like, I can't look back at a hobby that overtook, uh, you know, spending time with your beautiful son, my beautiful son, or our families, uh, you know, and that was, it's, that's a tough decision. There's no easy decision there. Yeah. And then there's the thing of like, you know, if, if I'm going to, even doing it as a hobby, even if we, uh, even if we had done like, let's say 20% less work or something, it's still a lot. <laughs> still, it's, a lot. Me, it's still a lot. Look, so I mean, I'd scaled I it back. That still probably wouldn't have made a diff that much of a difference. It, it still wasn't really going to be probably doable for me. Look, um, I wake I wake up at two thirty in the morning almost every day in order to get everything done. And since you and I have uh, parted ways on the show, we've gone from one episode a week to three episodes a week. Right. Uh, so I'm I'm out of my mind, but I'm I'm on a kamikaze run to make it work. And it wouldn't be in existence if it wasn't for you. And I re and I you know, I'm cognizant of that. So, yeah, I, I actually feel, you know, uh, that is the part of it that I feel kind of best about is I was able, you know, I, I feel completely satisfied helping you get this off the ground and making it become a thing and letting you run with it just because of that. You know, I, I really can't put it at that, at the center of my life. Like you can, you know, I'm glad that you're on because you broke the hymen. If you, if, if you'll accept the horrifying analogy. Of, yeah. Uh, and all you out there, we're talking about figuring all you fans who have been there since day one, who may miss me on the show. We're talking about figuring out ways to get me in there to make some guest spots myself and uh, to make an occasional appearance, drop in and say hello. Because I, you know, I really did love doing the show. That's the thing. We've said this many times. That was the, the, the best part of it, like actually making it, like going in and cutting the episode. That was what I was in it for, really, you know, the, the sheer yeah. creativity of it. And, and also, you know, also, you know why? It's a testament to our friendship. It, this is a friendship going on over 30 years. And, you know, I mean, the creative projects that you and I have engaged in, whether this or the triple album rock opera called El Farmony that we are ninety five percent of the way through. We're like we're more like sixty six percent of the way through. It's just the justification. It's true. We're sixty six percent. It's a justification to hang out because you know after your twenties you need to have a reason to actually get together or at least yeah right. I listen to the show now with the, the episodes that are just you and guests, and a lot of times I find myself wanting to jump in and like oh, I know what I would have said here and I would have said you know so 
I do miss doing it. Like a homeless guy yelling at a transistor radio. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I talk back to the show and I'm like, why aren't they responding to me? (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, one year in here we are, I, I, you know, I was frantically trying to find the uh, statistic of how many podcasts make it to even six months. Uh And uh, I couldn't recover the statistic, but I remember reading it and it was very small. And here we are a year in, it would not be on its feet were it not for Joseph Kennedy. I feel like getting it on its feet was maybe the easy part. Keeping it on its feet, which you're doing now, is that's what's really hard. So yeah. thank you for the thank you for the credit. But really, you it's this is your show. You put in so much love and time and effort into making this show great. I expect to see this show being really successful and, and being a part of your life for, for many, many years and being your thing, you know. So thanks, man. You're yeah. you're a welcome guest anytime. Right on. All right, lads and ladies out there in, in this discography city. Is that still a thing? It's kind of, yeah, it kind of is a thing, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what we got in store for you now is episode number one, Pink Floyd, 1967 to 1970. November 1st, 2021's episode number one, Discography's Pink Floyd Part 1. Enjoy. Enjoy. We'll see you on the other side. I'm Dave Gibro. And I'm Joe Kennedy. Welcome to Discography, the music podcast that delivers the objective truth about the entire discography of every single artist and band that ever existed. This, my friends, is episode one of a soon-to-be legendary podcast, and you will soon be loyal listeners, so let's give you an origin story, because everybody likes a good origin story. We're making history. That's right. You're here, part of this. That's right. Part of podcasts music guys talking history that's right consider yourselves very very lucky joe and i are extremely compulsive music listeners always had when i was a kid i always had a listening pile and then like the main reservoir where tapes or albums would go um you and know we what? know each other a really long time. We know each other 30 plus years now? Yeah, 30, 30, 30, 30 plus years. Yeah. So as things have developed in my listening tastes, I've developed what we both refer to as trolls. Mm-hmm. I would take an artist and actually in my free time, this is how I spent my free time, uh, read up on uh, an artist's chronological history as I was listening to it intently. Like I would not even move on to the next record until I was extremely familiar with it. And Joe and I would talk constantly about what, you know, what are you listening to? Uh, you know, what are the, basically it became the podcast. So all we did was just shift everything over to the studio from the phone. Yeah, I mean, these are kind of conversations we're having anyway. Um, I, you know, until now, um, I would not do these trolls. <laughs> not do the. Uh, I have a kind of a more kind of pick and choose kind of piecemeal approach to listening to stuff. But um, since we've started doing this now, I it is completely upended I've, I've the been, way that you listen. I've to been music, roped right? in. That's to, right. To the format. How does it feel? It's pretty good. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Yeah, it's in, it, part of the exercise of it's like listening to things that I would normally just get a few tracks in and be like, oh man. I can't deal and just take I, and move on to something else. So a kind the of the coolest um, part of this whole thing is that when you get a sense of an artist or a band's overall arc, it's a way different feeling than if you're just listening to a record. Uh, you get a true sense of an artist's career. 
Yeah, and it forces you to kind of stick with things that you might. I think that's kind of what I was getting at um, just a minute ago. I think it's uh, a lot of things I would maybe pull. I would pull the eject button. You know, <laughs> right, right, <laughs> right. Out. You know, sticking around. I, I think I've discovered some, some cool stuff that I, I may have passed up. So, but there's certain sections of certain bands that are just har- harrowing to yeah. get through. Well, but those that's are the, the ones you where pay. you know some of the trolls you've done in the past. I'm like, wow, you're really in the really in the rabbit hole of yeah of I don't know whoever it was but now we're what's like the most obscure trawl like oh what's man. the most unexpected trawl unexpected um you usually pick good ones that's the thing there was one that you usually I, want that, you won't invest your time in something that's like one one that truly blew me away was Marshall Crenshaw I right. could not believe how good he was yeah well, that's an example of a good one but. that that was a good one but there there were there were bad sometimes ones you sure. would report back to me on you know, being in some late phase <laughs> yeah I mean the very last Genesis was, album with that weird other guy singing yeah, stick all the way stick in there all the way yeah, through. stuck there all the way through even I mean I didn't even give up on I can't dance. Well, that's what we're doing now. That's now what we're doing now you with you, with you guys, and that's right. basically the concept of discography. Today we'll be turning the metaphorical spray cans on the legendary Pink Floyd. Yummy ballroom provocateurs, whimsical psychedelic freaks turned beer swilling architecture students, moralizing. Bores. Yes, exactly. And thus, you've no need to actually listen to and the full episode. Thank you for joining yes. us. The way discography works is we go through an entire artist or band's discography, everything, albums, EPs, singles, um, notable appearances, comps, everything. We listen to it in order, we research it down to the bone, and then we give everything a finely honed rating between zero and five. And then we dish out our sweet, sweet opinions and all this music to you, our listeners. We dole it out like nectar in your ear hole. And at the end of the day, you'll have a fantastic killer playlist. Just go to discography.com and lick it up. Lick it up. Oh, it's only right now. That was my part, the only right now. Sorry, part. sorry, dude. Uh, there is a lot of meat on the bone for this one. I mean, uh, you know, interestingly, when you think about, you know, personal connections to Pink Floyd, or certainly when I do, there's all these different markers in your life where the band means certain things at certain times. They're, you know, um, they are, you know, operatically intense emotionally. So as a 11 or 12 year old, the wall is like the only thing that makes sense. At least it did to me. Then, uh, you know, when you're first discovering drugs, there they are peeking around the corner. <laughs> yeah. I think the first awareness I had of Pink Floyd was maybe when I was six or the wall came out, what, 78 or so. So I would have been six, seven, maybe 79. Um, and hearing um, another brick in the wall on the radio, it was kind of ubiquitous on the radio um, in those days. And it, even as a small child with no real context for it, it was disturbing. It's, you know, it was, it was kind of a disturbing, um, haunting memory of mine as a, as a child hearing that. So they, right out of the gate, the first awareness I ever had of Pink Floyd existing was that it was this kind of dark, disturbing music. But cartoony. It yeah. was like it had a cartoony element to it, so that's why I think it appealed to, you know, sort of the uh, the preteen. Yeah, and with our age, I think we were contemporary contemporaneously aware of the wall as kids, 
right? Yeah. So that's maybe the first music I can really remember being new is in the late 70s. And the, 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 the wall is right in that zone for me. It went from the only album that I could even bother listening to, to not even being able to tolerate it. The whole pre-Dark Side history of Pink Floyd is, uh, I think most many people don't even know that it exists. They're, the huge mainstream success they had, and the, the constant presence on what is now classic rock radio... You would think they that their career starts in like 1972 or something. Just as Fleetwood Mac, you would think their career started in 1975. Yeah, I guess there's a lot of parallels between those two acts. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, I don't think I was even aware of Sid. I mean, like I was in that boat where I didn't really know of their early stuff at all until maybe I was in college or something. Um, I didn't even really know that Sid Barrett existed. Um, he was kind of forgotten, really, if you weren't like a real like rock fan or something, you know? Yeah. And, those, you know, those the, songs the, don't live on on the radio at all. Any of the Sid stuff? No, not at all. And the the crazy thing about um, about the whole Sid uh, specter that looms over their career is that that um, from the release of their first single until Sid was out of the band, we're talking ten frenetic months. We're not even talking a right. year. You know, and it also loomed over the rest of their career. Just these ten months. Yeah. Right. So I guess let's go back to the beginning. We might as well go back to where uh, the early genesis of Pink Floyd, um, starting with Sid and the the four-piece uh, pre-Gilmore. Yeah. So the very first single uh, that came out was Arnold Lane on the A side and Candy and a Current Bun on the B side. Now, I'm going to demarcate dates uh, during this time to kind of guide us through because it's pretty intense the roller coaster ride they go on that was march 1967 the, the there's a real melodic through line to sid's best stuff um in this period especially the the singles arnold lane and cm lee play singles where it's just it's all very melodically tied together with a very nice bow it's it goes to interesting yeah. changes and melodies and it's all like really pretty focused kind of songwriting yeah, and the and the you know the sort of not necessarily unfocused but uh, demented and deranged stuff is all very uh, finely put together. So it, it's not you know unspooling into complete madness quite yet. Yeah, and the the scene they're they're coming from and the uh, circumstances. I mean, it's 1967. They had kind of been around playing the. Well, I I think of them as their ballroom years. You know, they they would play these kind of happenings of shows, you know, it's everyone's on drugs. And that scene um, was called the Canterbury scene. Right, the, Can- right, the Canterbury Caravan, scene, exactly. Yeah, Soft Machine. Uh, Tomorrow kind of involved in that yeah. scene. Um, the, so Floyd, though, was really the class of it because they had, the, the you know, Sid's amazing songs. So the you had not only the, the as musicians, the other guys in Floyd are are solid, not spectacular, really. I'd say David Gilmore, who joins the band later, is probably the most accomplished musician out of the rest of them. Agreed, yeah. But they're not really virtuoso musicians. They're all very creative. Textural. You know? Yeah, exactly. So they had that kind of going for them, I think, um, early on. And then another weapon they had was Sid's also a very fine guitar player. His guitar excursions, his, all his, you know, um, his, the, the sort of raga stuff that he does. He's, he's just, music just kind of pours out of him. He's just a very musical person. And, you know, it was unquestionably his band and his vision. And so see Emily play, which is three months later, June, 1967. That is, as far as I'm concerned, that's the apotheosis of playful, whimsical psych 
tipping over into the the de- demented brain damage that was going to overtake the songwriting. Yeah, I mean that's a just a jewel of a song. It's perfect. Um, it's uh, to me the like kind of the pinnacle of psychedelic rock. Really, is was all made in the same building at the same time. They were there, you know, Sergeant Pepper. And I think it was Norman Smith. Norman right? Smith. Was, yeah. I think yeah. they cut CM Lee play at Abbey Road. I know for sure Olive Piper was done there. Olive oh, Piper, um, yeah. But um, they really nailed that, uh, you know, Lewis Carroll, Alice in Wonderland, British whimsical psychedelia. But again, CM Lee play has that exquisite melody. The the changes in the melody in that are surprising and very satisfying. Uh, so then we have uh, their debut record, The Piper at the Gates of Dawn, uh, which is just insanely good i mean this is uh you know unquestionably sid's record he wrote every single song on the album except for one which is easily the worst song on the record that's roger waters's song right that's uh take up thy stethoscope and walk but aside that um notwithstanding that clownish uh, diversion. The rest of the album is ridiculously good. Yeah, and they were in the fortunate position of they were kind of a low priority. They were on EMI, and they, um, you know, they they were uh, they had a lot of notoriety from their live shows. And Piper is kind of a good example. They they got some of the sort of ballroom psychedelia longer form kind of songs. Astronomy, Domine, yeah. and Interstellar Overdrive. Right, so really showing off what they could do in that area, which, uh, and then also, but mixed in with Sid's little tight, concise little They're so tight. Songs. They're like, you know, two to three minutes. Uh, the word I keep going back to is focused, because mm-hmm. of what happens later, that's the part that gets lost. Like, I think still Sid still has the creativity, he still has the, the kernels of the ideas, but as his brain starts to fry, he starts losing the ability to focus Spoiler them. Spoiler alert! Them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, but, you know, what I love about the album is that it, there is a foreshadowing. I mean, the the end of Bike, uh, it really, it feels like uh, here's, he's predicting his own yeah, mental decline. Yeah, yeah it is. It is very much like that. that. Like this, So, yeah, Piper was produced by Norman Smith and it was recorded at Abbey Road simultaneously to when they, uh, Pink Floyd was in Studio One. I think. And the Beatles were definitely in studio two there, um, doing Sgt. Pepper simultaneously. When the when Floyd started making Piper, the um, the Beatles were finishing Sgt. Pepper. And by the time Floyd finished mixing the, the, the album, by the time it was complete, the Beatles had already moved on to making Magical Mystery Tour. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So this is all happening the same time in the same building, like literally down the hall. Norman Smith, who produced, was a Beatles engineer and had done... Um, had worked them a lot, I guess when on days when Jeff or maybe he was second engineer to Jeff Emmerich, but he was in the mix of, of the white lab coat guys at Abbey road. Hmm. And, um, it sounds pretty radically different from the Beatles albums, which, um, the, the Beatles albums really kind of preceding that rubber soul revolver, I guess revolver was the one immediately before it. Um, those are kind of very punchy present kind of in your face kind of albums. And the way, um, that they're all recorded with close miking, Piper sounds kind of distant and celestial. It doesn't mm-hmm. really have that sound at all. And I think that was a conscious decision on the part of the producers, um, even though they're in the same, using the same 
equipment that the Beatles are using, it doesn't really sound like those records. They really wanted to get that uh, ballroom sound, I think. And, and I think the main reason it's not known barely at all in America is uh, not any kind of revisionism of history, but it's so British. It's in the same way that there's no way that the kinks are the Village Green Preservation Society ever would have made a splash here. There's also nothing... I, I mean, the two preceding singles are more singles, you know, than anything that was on Piper. Piper was really... Um, there's nothing really on you that screams out like this is going to be a radio single. There is absolutely no question this is a five-star record. It is a masterpiece from beginning to end. If you're not familiar with it, especially if you're a Pink Floyd fan and you're not familiar with this, you have to spend some time with this record. Yeah, easy five stars in this one. I think it's not just um, in its own right. It's 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 an exemplar of the style of psychedelia. It's a it's a high watermark of a whole genre. I, now I I'm like. a big psychedelia fan, so I'm kind of a sucker for the genre. Mm-hmm. But I would have to say this is one of my fifty favorite albums of all time. I have no idea about what number, but it's way up there. Yeah, definite five stars in this one. That is the the summer of love for them is basically, you know, riding on, um, you know, Piper being released. And Sid took a tremendous amount of acid from, you know, from the recollections of everyone who was there at the time. Uh, it was basically a daily thing and it was very unhealthy and not good. I mean, it wasn't from what I've read, it, it sounds like it was a very harrowing experience, uh, one that he just couldn't fight his way out of. Um, and then when you, you know, kind of check back in on where he is, musically that is, it's uh, August 1967, <clears throat> and Sid has uh, written a song that Pink Floyd has recorded called Scream Thy Last Scream, and it's insane sounding. It yeah. almost sounds like uh, metal. It's, it's unhinged. And isn't that? I believe it's Nick Mason doing the uh, uh, the vocal on that one. Mm-hmm. Um, it wound up not being a released single, and then uh, as they go into uh, the fall of 1967, you have another unreleased single. This one called "Vegetable Man," which is sort of a song length attempt at complete and utter self-effacement. Mm-hmm. The obliteration of the self. I mean, it just he's looking at himself and he looks like an idiot to himself. Yeah, neither of those are really kind of fun listens. Um, they're definitely interesting to check out, but crucial. Yeah, definitely interesting to see where he's uh, where he's headed and to see the development. They don't really kind of like again, like I was saying before, he's losing that ability to really tie it together and make it kind of work. It's more it's it's more kind of stream of consciousness kind of thing. I disagree with you. I think Scream Thy Last Scream is a very intense, powerful piece of songwriting. I never thought uh, Vegetable Man was as good, but, uh, but lyrically it's so striking that I, I almost see it as a diary entry more than a song. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, but they're I mean, they're definitely you know if you think Dark Side of the Moon is an adept document of uh, the process of going mad, then you have not heard these two songs. Uh, and so moving along, yeah, that, after, it's like actual going mad. It's actual going <laughs> mad. It's not as prettily packaged. Uh, so Vegetable Man was October '67. Then um, the next actual single that was released was the month following in November you have Apples and Oranges on the A side and Paint Box on the B side and 
I, it like, is, I like that single. It's a, good it's single. a cool single. And it's also, you know, during this particular trawl for Discography, I found that it was telling that his attempt to be commercial, which it sounds like what this single is, it sounds like broken down, disassembled pieces of Beach Boys songs that were haphazardly thrown together, and yet it's still good. This is the last Barrett single. Right. They also they were kind of in the position um, through all of Piper, really for and, and even beyond Sid's departure, where you know it was the t- it was the time in the music industry where the suits who were running things didn't really know what rock music and psychedelia was. So they were just like, "You kids, just do whatever. We're not going to get involved too much." So they really had like no micromanaging. Um, they were just kind of allowed to do to make whatever they wanted. And I think even Norman Smith had a pretty hands-off approach with them, just let them do their thing. And that's still kind of continuing through this single. Like, that's a pretty weird single. You know, they, it's, that's definitely not something you would think that's like, you know, the the, 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 the suits are going to be super psyched about putting out, but they just don't know what they have. So they're like, yeah, at that point, it was just like, it was just like with films at that time. I think the suits were throwing their hands up and they said, you know, I guess we don't know. We have no idea. So we'll let the lunatics run the assignment. It was a brief window, a brief, glorious window. Yeah. There's a famous Frank Zappa quote about that. You know, it's that, that soon, that, that, that brief period was really like kind of the glory days. Yeah, unless you're listening to the Wild Man Fisher double album. <laughs> now, in Floyd's case, though, they really got an extended opportunity to find themselves, which I guess we'll talk about later. Yeah, that kind of yeah, that's uh, just right around the corner. Yeah. But um, yeah, but that's another instance of the record company exactly thinking that you know there's something to be tapped here, but we don't know what the hell's going on. So. In between that window of, you know, uh, November 67 and the beginning of that next year, um, by all, from all accounts, uh, you know, Sid was becoming a hell of a lot less reliable. He'd go uh, perform on stage with, uh, I believe, Mandrax, which was a popular pill at the time, and shampoo or something mixed in in his hair. So while he played under the hot lights, it would melt down on his face. Apparently, apparently, Sid was doing this song around the time of uh, the end of his tenure with the band called "Have You Got It Yet?" And the idea, and it's this kind of more of a concept than a song. <laughs> I like to think that they actually rehearsed this thing, and the idea was he'd always be a step ahead of them, always change the the tempo and the chord sequence just when the band fell in step behind him, uh, and that co- sort of pointed the way I think to these guys just saying you know we gotta fucking chop the head off this giant I wonder how long they uh, went with that before they said fuck this <laughs> stop trying to guess what he's gonna do next well they certainly didn't go past uh, early January 1968 mm-hmm. which is uh, you so know, they're, they're in making their second album right that's kind of where we're at right now correct correct but you know they're like in the midst of it so for in early January 68 for eight days, they were a five-piece. And the idea initially was Sid was going to be their Brian Wilson, their you know brain-damaged guy who just churns out the music right, from so his the, living room. The, the fifth piece being uh, David Gilmore has now joined the right. party. But what actually wound up happening was, famously, on January 26, 1968, they just, all the guys were together. They were on their way to Sid's house, apparently, or or maybe they hadn't even uh, uh, driven off to pick him up yet. And they just decided to not pick him up for a gig. And that was it. And then from then on, the beer-drinking architecture students were at the helm. 
Right. And so they had done um, a little bit of recording with him. Um, I want to say something like a quarter of Saucer Full of Secrets has Sid on it. Is that about right? So he's, yeah. there's Jug Band Blues, and then he plays on the uh, the title track. Right. But before we go into Saucerful, what I'd what I'd love to do is follow the Sid trail until it ends right. and then backtrack. Okay. So, um, you know, pretty soon after uh, Barrett was just unceremoniously not even kicked out of the band, but just left out of the band. They ghosted him. They ghosted him. Um, so he came out with uh, two bona fide solo records, uh, the Madcap Laughs, which was produced. Uh, by David Gilmore, and he apparently uh, retrospectively feels terrible about the way he assembled it because it underscored the um, the breaking down of that focus that you were talking about before, Joe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so which Barrett is first, right? Barrett no, Madcap Laughs, Laughs, Laughs is first. first. Okay, so but to that's me, my favorite of the two. Yeah, Madcap Laughs seems to be the stronger of the two, where he has, um, the, uh, he still has really good kernels of things. There, there are four or five tunes on there in particular that have um, that that are that are pretty cool. Uh, the the Terrapins really cool. Terrapins amazing. Um, no good trying. Dark Globe. There's a there. It's. Um, my favorite stuff is toward the end. All the stuff that um, that David Gilmore feels terrible about, uh-huh. you know, uh, you can hear him rustling through pages and feel if it's in you. Late night, especially the, uh-huh. the closing song. I mean, these are amazing songs, and if you spend enough time with them like I did in 1991, you actually start to feel crazy and it is not very healthy. Yeah, there's a ragged quality to it that, depending on your temperament, can either be kind of endearing and fascinating or kind of off-putting. Um, it's, the, there's an air of unfinishedness about all of it. There's a kind of, an, even the songs more, are... More madcap laughs. Yeah, the songs... different. Yeah, the songs that where there's a full band playing, you kind of get the idea they don't really know the song very well. There seems like some flubbed chord changes and it's like, okay, that's as good as we're going to get it, sort of. It's 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 not, it's not there's rough edges all around it, for and sure. And again, you know, entrenched in the Canterbury thing, so you have Soft Machine guys backing him up on madcap laughs. Um... Then Barrett is not, I find, quite as consistent, but the highs are very high because you have Baby Lemonade. Yeah, Gigolo Ant. Right, Gigolo Ant. You have um, um, uh, Domino's is excellent. There's a lot of good stuff on that. Then there's sort of an odds and sods collection called Opal, uh, the main strength of which is the title track, which is essential, Sid. Um, And that was basically it for Barrett. Um, you know that after that he was in a band called Stars, um, and there's really, uh, you know, just shreds from them as far as uh, what's available. I don't even think I've heard anything. I've never heard any of that. And he started getting very private. Um, uh, would uh, you know rarely be seen in public. Um, got into painting and kind of stopped doing music. The the Sid solo stuff kind of has that has a feeling of sadness that kind of hangs over it to me because you can. Th- almost feeling like just so almost re- being able to reach out and grab it, but can't quite like they, they fall kind of into the category of like interesting and fascinating albums more than truly great albums. I disagree. I mean, to me, yeah. those are great. They have, they have a, they're a little bit like sad to me. They're a little yeah, bit they're like, totally sad. They're a little bit like, I feel like, um, I, it's sort of like I shouldn't be listening to them exactly. or something. You know? That's why, that's why Gilmore felt so bad about, yeah. uh, about producing it in yeah. that way. But one thing that Barrett said around that time, 
he did an interview, I think it was maybe 68, 69, and he said something uh, to the effect of, uh, I'm full of dust and guitars. Mm-hmm. I love that sentence. Yeah. And it, that's what it sounds like. It sounds like his, his, his brain is just in a, a permanent fog. But at the same time, that lack of focus that you were talking about, some of the tempo changes and chord changes on Madcap Laughs have a, a parallel universe logic Mm-hmm. That is beyond the understanding of a normal musician. Right, that's true. I mean, I the, he has the, even on the at, at the height of his powers, he was really like that as well. Where he had a sense of like the the it's it's it isn't just his uh, the psychedelic nature and his creativity, but as a as a composer, just his like the the way he could make melodies twist around like. Um, that element of it gets lost. That, that, that to me is like my favorite part of what he could do. And that has a kind of broken down where it's like just fragments of it on, on the, on the later solo albums. But, but then interestingly to backtrack back to saucer full of secrets, when you hear something like, um, jug band blues, and when you hear that fragmented mental state, uh, that was then, you know, had the production muscle behind it. That's the razor's edge. That's where he's right on where it's still kind of all working. Yeah. And then that's the tipping point to me. Jugman blues is kind of the tipping point where after that it's the, it's a different kind of thing. Right. It is the tipping point. That's the, that's the fulcrum right there. So saucer fill of secrets to backtrack came out in June, 1968, right at the outset of the record set the controls for the heart of the sun is the only song with all five members on it. Um, Saucer Full of Secrets is literally the opposite songwriting-wise of Piper. Piper was, um, Sid had every song but one, and on Saucer Full of Secrets, he only writes one song. Yeah, and so this is where they get into the, uh, they're starting to wander into the desert of figuring out what they are exactly. Um, And it's a pretty interesting journey. It's so fucking fascinating. I mean, you know, you and I were talking on the car ride over here just about how, you know, the record company's uh, unwillingness to squash a band if they have, you know, what was clearly... Uh, major, major trouble. I mean, you have a band that's most famous for the guy that's uh, who's and who's a, not only who's a true visionary, who's true, a true, visionary, true yeah. unique, like nobody else really, and even in his category. I mean, I sort of try to think who's most similar to Sid Barrett. Kevin Ayers a little bit, like Arthur not even Lee. Real, Arthur Lee, but still not really. It's it's he's, yeah, he's yeah. in such a unique category as a songwriter. That yeah, it's unfathomable to think that the the guys backing him were going to make something. And then to turn into what it did is... I mean, these guys would probably have been the first to admit that they were not visionaries. In fact, uh, you know, the management team behind Pink Floyd, when Sid was left out, they went with Sid. Right. Because Floyd was the losing Because sure, of of, of course, why wouldn't you? Yeah. So... um, you know, to the to the extent that what they became famous for, for you know, for a lot of their career anyway, were these long drawn out pieces. The inception of that idea was they didn't have enough music for the record, <laughs> right, right, right. and they needed something that would just be filler. So that was the title track of Saucer Full of Secrets. It's their first long form piece. Um, and it came out of writer's block, basically, or just lack of inspiration. Mm-hmm. Um, the have- song Saucerful, the the longer form pieces on Saucerful of Secrets are not my favorites. Like compared to the ones on Piper, 
There, set the control. Set the controls is kind of cool. It's, I love that. It's, I love that. Song. It's definitely like you know their their uh, the ballroom style. That, yeah, uh, totally. I can totally see that being. Um, it's cool. The ones that are really interesting to me, though, are the more kind of transitional songs. So there's a couple of Richard Wright songs where it sounds like he's kind of trying to do Sid and kind of does a pretty good job. Pretty amazing. I love uh, Remember a Day and Seesaw yeah. have always been my favorite tracks on that record uh, because they're how you described Piper, that celestial distant mm-hmm. thing. It really is so fucking stonery. Yeah. It really just sweeps you right away. Well, it seems like that was maybe one strategy they were going to pursue. Like, let's just keep doing these Sid style songs. Richard Wright can kind of write ones that are kind of in the ballpark. Maybe this is one way we can move forward. Yeah. You know, because still, you know, uh, Waters is not firing on all cylinders. You have Waters' first war-related song, Corporal Clegg, mm-hmm. and it's just as shitty as all the rest of his yeah, war songs that a... would follow. Um, but, you know, I mean, it's it's a mixed bag, but overall, as a piece, it's it has a schism to it, almost like... Uh, it's a weird comparison, but the Beach Boys, Carl and the Passion, so tough. Uh-huh. It's so it's a couple different records in one record. Yeah, yeah, and and it's very fascinating. It always sounds good when it's on. Yeah, the other track that I was uh, I had I didn't really remember it, but it impressed me on this on this uh, go through of listening to all the stuff is the Let There Be More Light. Which is kind of like a kind of like a proto echoes what they uh-huh. would later do. Um, it, the, the, that one is a more successful to me long form piece, um, and that kind of hints that that is kind of the direction they sort of did wind up going in. Um, yeah, it was it was that tune. You know, this is uh, for anyone who gives a fuck. This is Nick Mason's favorite Pink Floyd album, and he called it a crossfade instead of a cut. Mm-hmm. Which I found a pretty apt quote. Mm -hmm. Um, So, uh, in the end, uh, I would say Saucer Full of Secrets gets five stars. I gave it a four, but I think you could argue anywhere from four to five. I dinged it a little bit because of a couple things that are filler-ish to me, like the title track. And so, kind of a good chunk of it is a little bit fillery. Um, but uh, yeah, you can make a good argument that it's in the four and a half, five zone on just sheer listenability. There's things I skip every time. Still five stars. Yeah. It's, it's, it's very good. Okay. And then after saucer full of secrets, the first thing they released was six months later in December of 1968, you have a single, uh, you have point me at the sky on the A side and careful with that ax Eugene on the B side. Um, and then, in a cool little twist, the character of Eugene appears on the A-side. And, of course, that's who they're singing about on the flip. This is a great little song, again, stuck in that mid-period of, you know, wandering around, bumping into walls, trying to find out who the hell they were. Yeah, cool single. Um, I, I think uh, it shows the evolution of it. They're still kind of finding their way. Um, and they, they, there's a lot of kind of stops and starts at this phase of their career where they're kind of doing projects that aren't really like an album per se. They're kind of these weird, like they do a bunch of soundtracks and art installation, art installation. And, and, and then like there's a, that, uh, there's that like weird the, double live slash studio albums. And, and then, and then the Roger Waters collaboration with Ron, Ron Geeson. Yeah, the guy's name. Yeah. the body. It's yes. called. Yeah, 
I think that's the only thing I haven't heard from the classic Floyd. That's the era. same guy that did, well, we'll get to him later. I have a whole thing about Ron Geeson. <laughs> oh, sweet. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I don't have to take Ambien. <laughs> um, so, you know, during this time, you know, I, I can't, you know, this is endlessly fascinating to me because it's so very much the opposite these days. But from 1968 to 1971, uh, you know, they were allowed to stumble around and and they had total freedom and liberty to find out who they were. And it's just so funny because it is it is so antithetical to what uh, how things have turned out to be in the music industry. But the two bands I think of are Pink Floyd and, and Fleetwood Mac. And the Fleetwood Mac middle period uh, is sonically very related to the Floyd middle period. It's mm-hmm. like if you don't really know what kind of songs you want to write, then you really got to slather on the reverb and hope for some atmosphere to magically touch your tracks. Yeah, and then they came out of it in completely opposite directions, and then both went on to being massively huge. Um, right. Fleetwood Mac with personnel changes, and Floyd just with basically ev- constant evolution. They kind of took different paths to get there. Right, right. So after that single at the end of 68, uh, we enter 1969 with the soundtrack for the movie More. And this one's kind of a lesser effort. Um, and it is kind of, there's a bunch of stuff on it that kind of is what it sounds like, which is them just jamming in front of a screen with movie scenes that they're scoring. Right. And that's literally what they were doing is just jamming. Yeah. I, I think a lot of this stuff was actually first pass. This is the first album without Barrett. It's the first full album without him. Um, and it's Barbe Schroeder's uh, directorial debut. Have not seen the movie. Um, uh, Gilmore sings everything on the record and his voice, uh, you know, the, his, his calming tones definitely characterize this time in the band's history. Yeah, and uh, this is another one where they're trying a lot of stuff here. There's some kind of hard rock moments on it. They're, it's definitely... It's kind Nile of, song. Yeah, it's known kind of mostly as like their folk rock album and there is a lot of like acoustic stuff um, in that vein, which is a new sound for them really. Um, there's the Roger Waters thing, Cymbeline. That's kind of a highlight. Green is the color I love. Yeah. And then there, some of the uh, more um, atmospheric things, like there's the one song, Cirrus Minor. It's kind of like, a, it's, it's um, not really a super essential track, but it's kind of uh, primordial Floyd, atmospheric, you know, eerie you know, there's like birds chirping on it. <laughs> this is, I mean, I, I love more. It's a very inconsequential piece of work. Yeah. Uh, but at the end of the day, I'd have to say, uh, I give it a solid three and a half stars. That's what I gave it. I gave it three and a half as well. Um, it's just one long piece of tangential drift. Yeah. And you can edit it into a little, you know, five or six song playlist. That's pretty nice. Um, and there's a, the quality to all this early Floyd stuff that um, is, uh, you know, there a lot of their stuff has been just, you've been bombarded with it on classic rock radio, pretty much from everything dark side on. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, you know, I mean, it's like they're, you've heard those songs as many times as you've heard like Taking Care of Business or something. And I think that right. takes a lot of the shine off some of those songs. Um, no, it's nobody's fault. It's just the sheer repetition of it, you know. But these early Floyd records, all the way up, I think even through metal, um, it's there. They have you. Ha- you haven't been assaulted with them, 
you know, over the airwaves for, you know, decades. And so they sound fresh and kind yeah, of kind like, of like you know, the, kind of like magical mystery tour. That's right. The era of the bit, you never hear the magical mystery tour songs on the radio. Yeah. So they still kind of have a, um, uh, they're kind of more personal to me in a way. Like I, I, I could put them on for enjoyment in a way that Always. I'm, I'm probably not going to put on shine on your crazy diamond to listen to for fun because I don't really need to, because I've, I've heard it a billion times. Yeah, exactly. This stuff always sounds good when it's on. So after more, uh, we have Umaguma. The band do not like this record. Um, also, uh, for whatever it's worth, uh, it's the last album to feature the band on the cover. It is a double album. One of them is live. One of them is studio slash solo. Uh, kind of like how Emerson, Lake, and Palmer divided all their shit up for that that pile of trash album works. Volume one. <laughs> exactly. And volume two. Um, but the idea of naming something volume one when you make it is uh, just a very special kind of arrogance. And I love the idea of, even though World War One was called the Great War, I like to think that some asshole was like, nah, this is World War One. This is fun. Uh, but Umaguma is... Uh, I've always loved Umaguma. I have a weak spot for that record because it, it really is a total experiment and it's a a big experiment um, and they totally fail. I mean, they don't, it's, even though it's not a great record, it there's nothing like it kind of thing. Uh, some of it works, some of it doesn't. I especially am privy to the Roger Waters stuff. Grandchester Meadows is amazing. Um, several species um, of uh, furry animals gathered together and grooving with a pick. It's a great noise collage. Uh, some of the other solo stuff, not as great, but not disastrous either. What do you think? This one I don't like as much. I do like the live disc. I'm not usually a fan of live albums. Um, so the live much, stuff's good. But this one, it captures them kind of at the last and the tail end of the ballroom kind of thing. It's a good recording and um, they play pretty inspired and I was surprised to enjoy it as much as I did listening to it for the purposes of this. So I like the live side. The studio side, I mostly don't really like. I mean, I do like Grandchester Meadows, but um, that's that really seems like a seven-minute song that should be a three-minute song. Not to me. It I, lo- to I me. love how meandering it, just re- it is. It just like repeats itself. <laughs> I know, but it, it's so meandering. That whole phase I, of the band is so meandering. I just feel like it's like they needed to fill more time on it, so they're just like, it's I'll, funny. Just, I'll, I was, just repeat, I'll just repeat it I was twice. just thinking I could have heard like a 15-minute version. <laughs> right. Seriously. Um, I think that was part of a piece they were doing at the time um, that was supposed to be a full day. Right. And that was the daybreak section of it. Yeah. It's uh, nice. It's a nice piece. It's, I mean, it's, that's probably the, the highlight for me on the studio side. Um, the Gilmore stuff is okay. Um, the, the, uh, the Richard Wright thing, I don't like at all. I, the, yeah, yeah. Sisyphus, the appropriately titled Sisyphus, because it's like rolling a giant boulder up a hill and then <laughs> having it crash down on you. I know it's not good music, but I just, my, uh, to be honest with you, my judgment is clouded during this period of the band's history because I have a weak spot for basically everything they did. Yeah, if you're uh, the kind of person who likes to hear the evolution of it, this is obviously a key piece in it. Still, they're still definitely building the building blocks. Um, yeah, it, the concept of it, I think, didn't really play to what their strengths were, though, because there were four pieces on the studio album where they're each leading their own thing. 
and they work better, I think, when they work together. Well, the funny they, part of it is they they went to Waters and. I don't know if it was at least one of the guys went to Waters and said, can you please write some words? For, and he was like, go fuck yourself. It's your side. <laughs> right. So they are they're the ultimate kind of, you know, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts sort of band to begin yeah. with. So I feel like when they're all collaborating, this is the, this is them working. Uh, they're they're it's the weakest way for them to work for them to each be the leader. They're, you know, they're kind of by nature all sort of supporting pieces really agreed but i give it four stars anyway i gave this three um mostly for the live side bro i get it (laughs) (laughs) so next up we enter the 1970s with uh, a soundtrack for michelangelo antonioni's zabriskie point uh, an admittedly totally shitty movie uh, extremely poorly made from a director who's known for making very well-made movies. Um, but, um, you know, it wasn't just the uh, Floyd. It was uh, the Dead were involved, uh, Kaleidoscope, who were an amazing band, the American one. There's two Kaleidoscopes from that time. Zabriskie Point, for me, mainly underscores folk paths not taken. You have uh, a few songs on that uh, that piece, Country Song, Crumbling Land in particular, and Rain in the Country, they all betray a Crosby, Stills, and Nash influence. Um, and then Come In Number One, Your Time Is Up, is a re-recording of Careful With That Axe, Eugene. And we're just, you know, in similarly atmospheric territory, and this stuff just sounds really good. Yeah, and they're kind of uh, getting the the sort of chill vibes going that um, they would kind of more be known for later. It's a little bit like in the folk rock thing, the way more is, but I think they're just kind of getting a little better at what they're doing. Um, the, everything kind of has a real kind of chill pocket, and it's the it feels very relaxed, and they feel kind of comfortable with the, and the Zabriskie Point stuff. So I guess this, this stuff wasn't really released until many years later on the box set, right? Right, right. So it was it's kind of bootle- widely bootlegged. <clears throat> right, so there's, you know, there's all kinds of bonus tracks on that and things like that, but this is not a major piece of work for them. Um, it's I wouldn't even call it their best soundtrack work, but uh, I would give it three stars. Yeah, I think that I had that uh, jotted down the same as three. Um, worth checking out, worth seeking out. There's a good version of it. There's a fellow that runs a blog called Albums That Never Were, um, which kind of is just what it sounds like. He kind of makes these uh, kind of meticulously compiled and mastered versions um, of albums that were never really released. And that's probably the definitive version. If you want to hear this, I would go check that out. Um, he's always updating it and improving. When it's so goddamn available. good. This guy, I wish I check it every day, honestly, because I just love what he does. He doesn't post that often, but um, it's this one's one of the one of the better ones. I feel like I've gotten on that site. It feels like a real record. And then uh, moving on to Adam Hart Mother, which is the second and final album of 1970. Adam Hart Mother is an interesting hybrid. Uh, the album's concept is similar to Umaguma in that it features the full band in the first half with a thick blanket of symphonic uh, sodomy uh, just straddling the entire goddamn thing and overtaking it, and then focuses on individual members in the second half. Side one is a piece of shit, and side two is a masterpiece. That's just what you have to accept about Adam Hartmother. Yeah, well, our friend Ron Geeson is back here. So um, 
the, <laughs> I'll read you the notes. I uh, contemporary. So the 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 main the the side one is a big long prog kind of epic, and um, the the problems with it are are uh, are manifold. <laughs> Lots of problems with it. It's, it's so fucking doesn't work. Yeah, it's it's very ponderously written in the first place, and then on top of it, there's all this orchestration, and it was done by this guy Ron Giesen. Um I don't know much about his other work, but this is the orchestration on this just sucks. It's like very vanilla. It's scored for some very odd, it's like 10 brass and no strings. So it's all this kind of bombastic sort of brass kind of sound. And there is, there's no like interesting harmony in it. There's yeah, there's no, no there's, there's no, no counterpoint. To, nothing. Like, there's nothing. It's just like a blank slate. My for notes a long just time. my notes just say this title track is terrible. The orchestration is shitty. This composition is boring as fuck. This cat Ron Geeson, he sucks. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about his other work, but this definitely sucks. This is making me mad how bad it is. Well, <laughs> here, my here, here's, here's contemporaneous the endlessly notes. annoying thing to me about Adam Hartmother because I have a long relationship with this record. I love every song on the second. Side yes, so the side two is really great. That yeah. I keep thinking that I miss something on the first side. So the amount of goddamn time I've wasted going back and reassessing Adam Hartmother, it's not worthy of it. Yeah. First of all, you have "If" by Roger Waters, which is you know a solid song. Mm-hmm. "Summer '68" is amazing. That's great. That's Wright. a real. That's a great jam. If. Um, really almost an unknown buried treasure of their catalog. People don't really know that song. And then my favorite song on the record is Fat Old Son. Yeah, that's great too. Gilmore. I mean, talk about atmosphere. Mm -hmm. He loves that song. That's just an amazing little tune. And then Alan's Psychedelic Breakfast is a cool little piece. I've always loved that. Yeah, Alan's Psychedelic Breakfast is like a sound collage that sounds like it's made out of a few different pieces that they stitch together and then some interstitial sounds. Um, but, it's like um, if Nick Mason did something good for Umaguma. But there, there's something very welcoming about Alan's Psychedelic Breakfast. It's some, there's something very friendly about it. It's not right. like a dark kind of psychedelia. It's a, it's a, uh, it's a, it's, there's, some, there's a warmth to it somehow. And isn't it amazing how you go from the title track, which is so thick right. with everything to this pared down minimalist re- kind of piece. Yeah, yeah. Field recording of a guy cooking uh, bacon and eggs. Yeah. That is somehow so much more inviting. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so basically, yeah, Ron Giesen sets the table for you know, the rest of the band. I don't know if it's really his fault because he came at the end after the, they had tracked that piece. There's also some sort of technical issue with um, the recording of the title track of Adam Hart Mother where they were not able to it's because of the format they were recording and they were not able to make edits so they had to get the whole right, 20 minute right. thing in that's one right. take so. that's barbaric it really is um, you know that record you know even with the first side being a complete waste of time so you only have one side left I give it four stars I gave it three and a half I, you know, I averaged it between five and one or whatever. I guess that would be three. So I gave it a little bit of a, bo- a bonus. I gave it three and yeah. a half. It's, I mean, I, I can't not like the record. Yeah. Those songs on side two are amazing. Trust us on this one. Skip side one and check out side two. It's it, it really is up. It's uh, it's some of their best work. It's some of their best work, and it's it's uh, it'll be all unfamiliar to you because it, they're songs that hardly anybody knows at all. And then, truly, Alan Psychedelic Breakfast. If you look at the history of Pink Floyd is the sayonara to the beginning phase of the... It's uh, an experimental piece. They would never plumb those same waters again, ever. And that concludes part one of the Pink Floyd episode. Quite a uh, journey so far, but there's still a lot more to go. Be sure to uh, come back next time 
for part two of the Pink Floyd saga, their ascent into otherworldly fame. And also coming up, we have, uh, besides Floyd part two, we have Badfinger, Cocteau Twins, Beck, Sly and the Family Stone, Van Halen, Betty Davis, uh, the Bee Gees, and tons, tons more, including very special episodes. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and please subscribe to us on the podcast platform of your choice. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we can't wait to see you next week for Pink Floyd Part 2, 1970 to 2014.